Hey, you. Thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make history. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be talking about the Eckert test. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, so in December 2021, Brooke and I did a TEDx talk down at Mashpee, uh, Massachusetts, um, to pitch our perspectives on remedial history, why our work is really needed uh, in schools, in intellectual conversations, um, and as sort of a, a catalyst for social change. So I want to share the section of our TED Talk with you that talks a little bit about the Eckert test. Here it is. In 1985, a woman named Alison Bechtel wrote a comic strip satirizing how few women appear as major characters and appear to have lives in the movies. The immediate result was something nicknamed the feminist movie test or the Bechtel test. Here it is. A film has to have two women that at some point talk to each other <laughs> about something besides the male characters. That's it. Two women who exist and talk about stuff. <laughs> this test helped raise awareness of gender discrimination due to the lack of women present in positions of power. Quick show of hands. Raise your hand if the majority of teachers you had growing up were women. This is reflective of the data. 75% of all teachers in the United States are women, and 59% of all secondary educators are women. And so it sometimes surprises people to learn that, that history is not only dominated by the stories and accomplishments of men, but that it's also primarily taught and researched by them. 58% of high school social studies teachers in the United States are men, and history professors are, are mostly men with 65%. So while most of us had female teachers growing up, it's important to ask why would men have such a stronghold on history? Men teaching history is not inherently problematic. 
except that only 6% of male historians write about women. If scholars are not writing about women, it won't trickle down to the teachers. And studies show that teachers discuss women's topics between 5 and 20% of the time, with 5% being the plurality. That is nowhere near half. So we've applied the Bechtel test to the history curriculum, and we call it the Eckert test. I created the Eckert test because I was saddened at how many times I failed to bring a female perspective into my own lessons. The Eckert test is what I do to hold myself accountable to a more comprehensive and diverse women's history. Okay, Kels, but how does it work? The test is this. One, there are two women present in the lesson. Those two women have different opinions, and they represent different backgrounds, whether that be racial, sexual identity, ethnic, religious, generational, or economic. At first, what I did was I started adding women's perspectives to my lessons. I took one that I had on two black men who founded the NAACP but had really, really different perspectives on civil rights tactics. And to that lesson, I added the iconic Ida B. Wells Barnett. She also founded the NAACP, but what I had done was I put Wells Barnett in a position where she had to speak for all black women. There wasn't any women's diversity. Men get to be diverse in history. They get to have disagreements. But women who just pop up into history class don't get that luxury enough. I'm not sure I could name two women from every era, but I could name two men. So I think this is the problem. <laughs> it's definitely challenging. But with research, it is doable in every period and region of the world as far back as you can go. Um, even Mesopotamia? Brooke, even Mesopotamia. <laughs> I can name Kubaba off the top of my head. She was the first monarch in all of world history. Um, and with some Wi-Fi and an hour, I could make this happen. But let's pick a topic that most people in our audience know better. Early American history. Okay. The further back people go in history, the more they tend to stereotype women into domesticated housewives. We often hear people oversimplifying women's history and providing cop-out reasons to exclude women from the narrative. Women didn't do much. <laughs> Cute. That's a great point and a perfect example of the way that women's history gets erased. In every region and period of not just the US, but world history, women were there, they were documented, and diverse in thought and action. We know some native societies were matrilineal, where they passed power down through female lines, including the Wampanoag, who lived on the land that we are on right now. And while the ideal for women in both native and colonist cultures was to become mothers and serve in domestic capacities, in both cultures, women worked outside the home, taught, earned wages, sued for their freedom, owned land, voted, and participated in the politics of their time. Women were on the Mayflower when it arrived, 17 of them. We know all of their names. Okay, but do we know enough about these early women to have a colorful debate or discussion within a history class? Yes. We know that most of, about most of these women, and, and Native women and white women, through the writings of the men who came with them. So the Mayflower landed in 1620, and one of the biggest questions that should be investigated in a secondary history class is about the interactions between the so-called pilgrims and the Wampanoag when they arrived. And so, it is important to note that in 1675, these two groups were engaged in the bloodiest war in U.S. history. And between 1620 and 1675, a lot changed. 
clearly. <laughs> so much changed, especially for the Wampanoag. They contracted European diseases, and 90% of the tribes were eliminated. Wiedemu was the leader of one of the tribes in the Wampanoag Confederacy, and she was also sister-in-law to the great leader. She married many times to form alliances, and when one of her husbands died in English custody, she called foul. Time passes and she remarries, but eventually things between the Wampanoag and the English become too tense, and her sister's husband, Medicom, called Philip by the English, goes to war. Wiedemu's various marriages throughout her life meant that she commanded the allegiance of every major tribe in the Wampanoag Confederacy. Wiedemu had to decide whether to lead her people to war or to try to negotiate with the English. Her husband sided with the English, but she decided to side with the great leader, Medicom. She dissolved the political marriage and turned those allied with her against the English. But Kelsey, the Eckert test has to have two women present, isn't that correct? Correct. So this is a great place to bring Mary Rowlandson. She's captured and brought to Witamu during King Philip's war. She was held for 11 weeks and years later published a book about her experience that we can read as a primary account. Current practice in education asks students to become historians themselves with primary sources from the past. So how amazing that we can go this far back and that there are sources not only about women, but by women. Yeah, so cool. Rowlinson and Weetamu are awesome because they are two women who disagreed and represent different backgrounds. Rowlinson complained that Weetamu didn't give her enough to eat. In reality, Weetamu was in charge of a massive war effort in a time of scarcity. Rowlinson was ransomed home. Weetamu died in the conflict. Her decapitated head was brought back as a trophy, and when the imprisoned Wampanoag saw it, they wailed in agony over the death of their leader. Clearly, women were not just housewives in either culture, and colonial history is absolutely already being taught in our classrooms. Yet, but to accurately tell the story of what happened in the past, we still have hurdles ahead. Because while these women were there and meet all the hallmarks of what makes history, leaders, wars, etc., the war was named after the man and ignored the coalition effort. Why? Is it because this represents a dark period of U.S. imperialism? Or is there some underlying sexism that forgets her? But even when you remove the compounding layer of race, women continue to be skipped even when they meet all the hallmarks. Perhaps a better case is Mercy Ois Warren. Her name should be a staple in any course on the American Revolution. She wrote play after play, poem after poem that riled up New England leading to the war. She was willing to say independence far before her male contemporaries. She was brazen in her literary assault on the king. Her plays were widely read, and most importantly, she wrote the very first history of the American Revolution, published in 1805. The first history. Jefferson ordered copies for his cabinet. He knew and corresponded with many of the founding fathers. She talked with their wives personally. Warren was a staunch anti-federalist, so Adams, the first federalist president, was an obvious target. She joined the many who accused him of being a monarchist. There was a contentious exchange between the two of them, and after failing to talk her down, Adams issued the final blow to a friend, claiming, History is not the province of the ladies. 
She engaged in political dialogues with the biggest men of her day, and even she is lost to most people's understanding of the time. She exchanged letters with so many other women, one could easily build a lesson to pass the Eckert test. You can teach history from a women's vantage point at any point in history, even when women were not there. On D-Day, not a single woman was allowed to be part of the Allied invasion because the predicted death toll was so high. This was no place for a lady. <laughs> but even D-Day, I can teach from a woman's perspective. Martha Gellhorn was a journalist who stowed away on a ship because she wasn't allowed to be there, but all the male journalists were going, and she was not going to be left behind. Her account of D-Day is raw and wi was widely read in the United States. Marie Louise Osmont was a French woman who witnessed D-Day from her home on the bluffs of Normandy, where German soldiers were billeting at her house. Her daily journal provides a fascinating first-hand account of the impact of the invasion. And of course, it was Eleanor Roosevelt who addressed the nation with her calming words the morning of D-Day. Even when women are intentionally excluded, they were there. But women like those we've mentioned are also unique women. They are the women who defied the odds and fell into the themes that typically make history books. The women we've mentioned made history because they misbehaved. So many women in history behaved. They fell into gendered expectations and they served. So that's the test. And um, it's not super complicated. It's basically plagiarizing the Bechtel test and um, trying to assess, you know, give some sort of tangible way to get women's diversity into the curriculum. Um, fun fact, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, yes, the woman who wrote the line, well-behaved women seldom make history. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich emailed me um, after watching our TED Talk, which was so so cool. Um, and she said that she really liked the Eckert test. So I, that was like the coolest thing that ever happened to me. Um, but we have gotten some pushback and the pushback is not that the idea or the test itself is fundamentally flawed. A lot of liberal people um, have actually been like, what are conservatives saying about this? You know, oh my God, you're, you're liberalizing the education, da da da. And actually, um, we don't hear a lot from conservative folks at all because I think what they realize is that this actually is really great for conservative ideas and thinking um, because a lot of the women who do make history class tend to be radical feminists, you know, uh, people that are... Um, uh, on ex have extreme positions on things, you know, even like Susan B. Anthony or, you know, and I, I, I shouldn't say radical in that their idea, like Susan B. Anthony is advocating for women to have the right to vote. That's not, you know, that should be like a basic human right. But if you compare her to people in her time, she was a radical. And um, so that's what that's what I mean when I use that that term. Um, this will actually, I think, allow people to hear counter arguments. What were women saying uh, to push back against Susan B. Anthony? Because women were anti-suffragists too, um, but their their history, their perspectives and opinions have sort of been lost in favor of a pro-suffrage, um, you know agenda. And um, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I think it leaves us a bit lost to understand why would women have been opposed to that? Why are women 
opposed to things that in theory help women right now? What are these women worried about? Right. And let's have those conversations. And I also think, you know, any any good debater, even if you don't agree with those perspectives, you need to understand those perspectives in order to debate against them. Um, so I, I think this is a really great thing for like for anybody in any political position, because it's giving legitimacy to that perspective being presented in the classroom. Um, and personally, what I think is that when you actually hear out those arguments, I think there are ways that you could address those arguments um, in, through policy or, or other things um, that would actually m help women even more than a lot of feminist perspectives tend to help women. So I actually think there's only things to gain from hearing out all the perspectives and sides. So uh, are we getting pushback? Not really, because I, I don't see what you would want to push back against. And it doesn't really matter what your political position is. I think it's very obvious how absent women have been from our curriculum. Um, we get trolled by people online about this stuff. And I can't tell if those people are bots or whatever. Um, but we haven't had any you know, formal or legitimate complaints ag against this idea, which is really exciting. So I hope everybody can take this Eckert test into their classroom. You could apply it in a million ways. You can use some of the inquiry-based lesson plans that we have on our website that feature the perspectives of a whole variety of women. But I hope people will make a stronger effort to not tokenize women's history. Um, let women be diverse. Let women's perspectives um, be seen and heard equally to male perspectives. And I bet we can change the world. Let's do it. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.